1 Corinthians chapter 11, thinking about Jesus and being in His presence and keeping our focus on Him. Because way back when we started this series in 1 Corinthians, one of the things we talked about is that the Corinthian church just had a lot of things that needed correcting in the fellowship. And part of it was because they had lost their focus. At some point in the church's history, they stopped really focusing on Jesus and got their eyes on the, each other and on the other things. And then that began to just cause problems in the church. So much of what Paul does in 1 Corinthians is either respond to the questions that the Corinthians had in a previous letter to him or corrects them about some things that will unleash the power of God, the Spirit of God, the presence of God in their midst like never before. There, there is no more gifted church in the New Testament than the Corinthian church, but there was no church that had more problems than the Corinthian church. And Paul wanted to see this church reach its full potential. So with that, notice in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. The Greek word there for imitators is the word mimites, where we get our word mimic from. And literally, Paul is saying, follow my example as I follow Christ. We ultimately need to be following Christ. But God understands it's important for us to have human examples of what it means to follow Christ. Mentors, models, people who are walking those steps with Christ a little bit in front of us so that we have almost the footsteps laid down for us. And Paul is inviting the Corinthians to do that with him. One thing that comes to my mind is it really makes us aware that whether we realize it or not, we're all setting an example. We may not want to be an example, but all of us are setting an example, whether we like it or not. So I think the Bible is simply encouraging us to always, as Christ followers, be the best, most positive example of what a Christ follower looks like. Because people are going to be watching us. And people are going to be looking at the way we live our lives. And even out in public, even if they don't know us, they're going to see how we act and respond in certain situations. There's, there's always those opportunities to lay down a Christ-like way in which other people can see. This, this is the way Christ would do it. This is how Christ would handle this situation. This is how He would be in this situation. And Paul says to the Corinthians, let's start there. Get your focus back on following Christ. And if you need a human example, then follow my example as I follow Christ. Verse 2, I praise you. And he didn't have a lot to praise them for. But when he did, he took the opportunity. He says, I praise you because you remember me in everything and you maintain the traditions just as I pass them on to you. The word maintain means to hold tightly or close. 
And that makes sense when you look at the word passed. It literally was a term that was used to pass the baton of a runner to someone else in the relay. And the idea is he's commending them for the fact that what he passed on to them, this baton of of Christian truth, the traditions of the Christian faith, these weren't man-made traditions here that he's talking about. These were the central truths of our Christian faith. And it was like Paul looked at himself as a runner, a relay runner, who had these great truths of Christ and of, of living for Christ. And it was his responsibility to faithfully pass them on to the runners coming behind. And he says, when I pass those on, you have held them tightly. Now, obviously, there's some things that Paul, though, needs to deal with them about because they haven't necessarily dropped them. But through time, some of these central truths and important principles have gotten warped because they've gotten their eyes off of Jesus. And one of the things that has happened in the Corinthian church is that there were a group, especially of women, prominent women, who, let's just say it this way, they were repudiating their role as a woman. And they were not acknowledging God's administrative order. And it was causing trouble in the Corinthian church. So that's why Paul, in verse 3, says these words. I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. When we talk about headship in the Bible, and you look at the word head, it literally is talking about order. God's administrative order. It has nothing to do with inferiority or equality in any way. In fact, Something to keep in mind as we go down through this passage is notice that Paul says God is the head of Christ. We would never say that Christ in any way is not is inferior to God the Father or the Holy Spirit. We would never say that He is not equal. But in God's administrative order, Jesus Christ has always taken upon the role of the eternal Son of God. Out of the Godhead, He was the one who laid aside His attributes as God for a time, at least to independently use those attributes. And He took upon human flesh, and He came to this earth, and while He was on earth living as a man, never ceasing to be God, but living as a man, He followed God the Father, and He followed the leading of the Holy Spirit, and He fleshed out, if you will, his role. He embraced it. He didn't repudiate it. And Paul is simply reminding us that whether we're talking about men or women, or whatever we're talking about, one of the things that I hope we'll get the spirit of in this passage, because this passage is so misunderstood, so misinterpreted, so misapplied, so misused, is that this, one of the things that's coming through here is that whatever role God wants you and I to play in life, if we would be willing to embrace that role, we would find a fulfillment and a satisfaction that we could not find in any other role. And that there is a power 
in embracing the role that God has for us, whatever that is. Whether you're talking about being a woman, being a man, being whatever. That there's power there. Getting a little ahead of myself, but in this passage, I I even was talking to my wife Lisa about this today in preparation, and I said, you know, I, I just don't want especially the ladies of the Oasis to get the wrong idea about this passage. And I said, I, I almost I almost hesitate because I don't want to make a deal out about a something that isn't a deal. And she brought up a very good point is, well, maybe, Jeff, there may be a lady who's struggling internally, unseen with some issues here. And I said, yeah, you're right. Because honestly, I, I don't see outwardly any women who regularly attend the Oasis who, at least outwardly, at church, appears to me like they repudiate their role as a woman. I don't see that. It happens at times. But with the gals here, I I don't see it. But I do think it's important that we at least cover the principle here because the principle can be applied. And the way it was fleshed out in Paul's culture deals with hair and the length of hair and covering and all of that. And that's where the church has gotten caught up on the way this was fleshed out and symbolized in Paul's society. But I don't think it's necessarily fleshed out or symbolized that way in our society. I think the principle's the same. I don't think necessarily it is fleshed out that way. And therefore, to use hair length and all that, I think a woman can have short hair today and not be violating or repudiating her role in embracing her role as a woman. I don't think it has anything to do with that. In Paul's day, it would have. One thing I'll just throw out here, and then i got to get on to the passage, is when you start talking about covering For women in this passage, let's remember that what that looked like was not the doilies that women wore. I grew up in the Church of the Brethren back east. The women in my church when I was a child, they wore basically what I call a doily on their head when they went to church. It was a head covering. And they did so because of 1 Corinthians 11. The problem with that is if you had a visitor, someone who wasn't a Christian who came into your church, you'd go, what's that on there for? They would have no idea. Let's remember something. The women in Paul's day that this is addressed to, when they talk about head covering, think more of what a Muslim or Middle Eastern woman is wearing today. It was that type of a covering, not something on their head. It was that type of a covering that Paul is talking about. That was the culture. Of the day. With that said, he goes on to say in verse 4 any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered disgraces his, I think, spiritual head, Jesus Christ. Any woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered disgraces her head. In other words, Paul's here talking about that which distinguishes and acknowledges God's order. And throughout this passage, one of the things that Paul's going to continue to talk about is God made male and female. He made us distinct. He made us different. And one of the things that God wants to see his people always reflect is the distinction between men and women. Because that's the way God made us. 
If society is going to blur the lines between men and women, that's the world's way. God says in my church, there should always be clear distinction between men and women. And that distinction should be held in some way in the way you and I flesh that out in the way we interact with each other in our culture and society. He goes on to say, for it is one and the same thing as having a shaved head. Verse 6. For if a woman will not cover her head, and in Paul's day, that would have meant that the woman, instead of embracing her role, was, again, repudiating it. She should cut off her hair, but it is a disgrace, or disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. She should cover her head. He goes on. For a man should not have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. I think he's just here, instead of getting caught up in, again, the way this culture fleshed it out, is Paul simply contrasting men and women in this context. That's why he goes on to say in verse 8, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. By the way, the word head that's used in this passage not only has the meaning of order, but it also has a shade of meaning of origin. And Paul's simply taking us back to the book of Genesis and saying to everyone what we should all know is that man was created first, then God took a rib from man and created woman. So woman did come from man. But hold on there. Paul, so that men... Don't get some weird place where they shouldn't be of how they look at themselves and how they look at other women. He's going to deal with that in just a moment. He says, neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for man. And again, you go back to Genesis. God says, uh, it's not good that the man's alone. I'm going to make a helper, a companion suitable for him. And that's why he named her woman, Eve being the first one. For this reason, verse 10, a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What? He's simply reminding us, and he's talked about this, and Peter talks about this in, in his letters, that believe it or not, the angels have a really insatiable curiosity to watch how we live our lives. Because they're up there in heaven and they're, you know, embracing their role as angelic beings. And they're following all of God's commands and, and they're living in the presence of God and in His holiness and all of this. And so they have a real interest in this whole salvation thing and what God has done. And they, they look at how we live our lives. And I think Paul is saying to the women at Corinth and to the men at Corinth, also be aware of the fact that the angels observe how you live and whether you embrace your role or not, whether you acknowledge God's order in your life, because they certainly do now as the angels of God in heaven. And then he goes, in any case, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man. Okay, that's sort of been established up to this point, but notice now what Paul says. Nor is man independent of women or woman. In other words, Paul now is saying, we're talking here about order. 
But we're never talking about it to the point of independence. The way God made us as men and women and male and female and then whatever roles, that God made us to be mutually dependent upon each other. That one could not or should not exist without the other. Even in the body of Christ, the hand, we're going to talk about this, and I shouldn't say to the foot, I don't need you. Yeah. You know, we would never, as parts of the body, want one part of the body to just fall off because it didn't seem like it was needed. All of a sudden, that would be like disastrous. And yet in the body of Christ many times, you know, well, there's certain parts that are more needed than others. No, they're all needed. All of us are mutually dependent upon each other. And we were designed by God to complement one another, not to live in isolation or independence, but to come together and, and learn to do it with each other. So Paul says, for just as woman came from man, which we get back from the creation story in Genesis, God now has turned it around and now man comes from woman. So before men start, you know, getting on their high and mighty place there. And again, it's just the fact illustrates male and female interdependence. Men and women have equal worth and both originate and are subordinate to God. Because he says in verse 12, just as man came from woman, so man, or woman come from man, so man now comes from woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. And then Paul now goes to nature itself. And says, does not, if you just look at nature, does not nature itself distinguish the sexes? He says, if you just let nature take its course and don't interfere with nature, does not nature distinguish and keep distinction between men and women? Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her hair unco head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace for him. If a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone intends to quarrel about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. By the way, verse 16 is one of four similar statements in this letter that served to inform the Corinthian church that they were out of step with the other churches in their conduct. That the other churches were seeing it this way. The Corinthian church was the only one that was having an issue in this area. Embracing our role. Acknowledging God's order. Nothing to do with worth, value, equality. Remember, God is the head of Christ. But just like Christ fleshed out on earth how he embraced his role, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He modeled for us in his whole life how true fulfillment in life could only, in a sense, be found when all of us, no matter whether we're men embracing our role as a man and women embracing their role as a woman, only then can we find fulfillment. And that even goes a little step further when we apply it to whatever God is calling us to do. I've told you this before in my life. I was miserable until I gave in and surrendered to the Lord 
and said yes to the role that he had chosen for me, which was to be a pastor. I ran from that role like Jonah for a number of years. And it was only until I embraced that role that I started to see, wow, God, you really do have this wonderful, abundant life for me. But I was trying to find it on my own. I was trying to create my own role rather than finding you and centering my life in you and saying, God, whatever your role is for me, I know that's where I'm going to be most fulfilled and satisfied. And I'm just going to embrace it rather than fight it. You know, it's like the little child. You know they need sleep. But they're just fighting it. And you're like, you, you'd just be so much better and so would I if you just go to sleep. And then when the child finally gives up and goes to, to sleep, isn't there such a peace and calm with all of us? You know. And in a sense, I think that's what God says to His children. Child... If you would just trust me to hold you close and just have the best interest at heart for you and just trust me in what I have for you in this life, what my will is, what my role for you is in this life, it would just be so... But you come kicking and screaming and fighting me all the time. And this is what was happening in the church at Corinth. And it was all because they had gotten their eyes off of Christ and they had forgot that Christ really modeled for them what it means to acknowledge God's order and to embrace one's role. Speaking of that, Paul goes on next to talk about the Lord's table, verse 17. He says, Now in giving the following instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Wow. How sad. Paul is, don't miss what Paul's saying to a local church. He says, it would be better for you to not come together because when you come together as a local church, it's actually worse off. That's not a good testimony for a local church. So that reminds us that when we come together as God's people, as a local church, guess what? From God's perspective, it should be better. We should all be better off for coming together. And especially in dealing with the context of the Lord's table and observing that. Because he says in verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as I church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. By the way, the word divisions in the Greek language is schismata, where we get our word schism from. Paul is saying, why are there schisms, divisions in the body of Christ? In other places, he would say, is Christ's body divided? No, it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be one. It's supposed to be unified. And yet when you all come together, you magnify your divisions. And there's a difference between maintaining our distinctiveness as male and female and the way God made us, but that crosses over when we maintain our divisions because these divisions were man-made, not God-made. If you go on down, as we're going to do, it was because of the social status or lack of social status in Corinth that these divisions within this local church was being made. And Paul said, really? Especially when it comes to the Lord's table? 
Verse 19. For there must be, in fact, divisions among you, so that those of you who are approved may be evident. Now, Paul makes an interesting point here in verse 19. He says, actually, divisions or factions of this type have a positive side. The positive side is they clarify whom God approves, who is faithful, who is trustworthy, and who is not. So Paul says, hey, when factions or divisions come in a local body, one positive thing it does. It sort of draws a line in the sand and marks out who are really the people who are following God in that local church and who are the ones that aren't. So Paul says, if you want to look at it that way, then at least there is that. But Paul goes on to say, when you come together, verse 20, at the same place, you are not really eating the Lord's Supper. Now remember too, in Corinth, like in many places down through history, when they would observe communion or the Lord's table, partake of the bread and the cup, they would also have a family meal together. And that's what was happening here in Corinth. They would come together for a meal. Again, going back to my roots, when I grew up as a child in the Church of the Brethren, every time we would observe the Lord's table or communion, we would have what was called a love feast. And we would all come together like we do here at the Oasis every so often and have a potluck. Then after the meal together, simple meal together, then we would wash each other's feet and then we would have communion after the fact. Same thing was happening in Corinth. They would always link a meal up with observing the Lord's table. And Paul is simply saying here, you're not really eating the Lord's Supper. And the reason he's, you're eating, but you're not eating the Lord's Supper. Because the whole fact that you're eating the Lord's Supper should remind you about the Lord. And the Lord was nothing about himself. It was nothing about him. It was always about others. It was always about thinking of others. It was always about serving others. And Paul says, the whole tenor, the whole environment of your Lord's Supper and, and your fellowship is all about self. It, it's all about thoughtless participation. You're not thinking of each other when you come together. You're only thinking of yourself. And Paul says it is such a contrast to the Lord. So you're not really celebrating the Lord's Supper because if you did, you'd be following the example of the Lord. For he goes on to say in verse 21, when it is time to eat, everyone proceeds to his own supper. So first of all, they didn't really share with one another what they had brought. And then he says, oh, by the way, one is hungry and another becomes drunk. There's a good fellowship. So in other words, get the picture in Corinth. You've got a group over here. Sorry, I'm just going to use you guys, not that you guys. Are. Yeah, they're over there and man, they got the plenty. You know, they got the dishes stacked up and they got five courses and... You know, the wine is flowing over. And, and over here, these folks have crumbs that they've basically brought from the, the, the and, and they're still hungry. And these people, and they're going to the same local church and they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And these folks over here could care less that those folks over there are hungry. And Paul says, really? How is that reflecting Christ in your fellowship? He says in verse 22, do you not have houses so that you can eat and drink? In other words, if, if this is the way you choose to behave in such a selfish way, 
then better to stay home. Because when you come together as the people of God, it should never be about me. It should always be, what about somebody else? Now I got to stop here. I'm going to get done. But I've shared this with you before. And so far at the Oasis, we've done a really good job. But growing up in church like I have, I have been to some meals at local churches that were stampedes. Where people were literally almost trampled as the food was laid out and getting to, you know, the line first and and piling up their plate like this. And then they brought extra large jackets that they could fill their pockets with. While the people who ended up being in the back of the line got morsels. And boy, when you read a passage like this, it's like, wow. Are we really reflecting the way Christ would be when we come together and have meals together or worship together or have, you know, church together? Shouldn't it be about looking out for others and not just myself? But again, in our consumeristic, even Christianity today, even as people approach church, it's always about what can this group do for me? Rather than coming to the church saying, I want to look out for somebody else. If we all did that, then we'd all be ministered to. So Paul says, better to stay home, guys. Or are you trying to show contempt for the church of God by sharing or by shaming those who have nothing? So Paul here is also saying such conduct disrespects the church as the temple of God. It's like Paul saying, you have no respect for Christ's body when you treat each other this way. And he says, those of you that have all this food and drink, and you're not sharing it with the ones who don't, you're shaming them. And shame on you, Paul says, for allowing that to happen in the body of Christ. He says, should I, what should I say? Should I praise you, Paul says? I will not praise you for this. The church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should be the one place outside of the world where all these barriers and and things that divide us out there in the world do not exist in the body of Christ. And Paul said in Corinth, they still exist. Can I just say that that's one of the reasons some people ask, why do you do certain things at the Oasis? Real quickly, we do have, in a sense, ministries for, you know, men, women, you know, other groups within our church. But I've even told the ministry directors or leaders, I do not want those ministries to function in such a way that they become independent of the whole body. They're not just to exist out there as an entity. They are to continually be encouraged to become part of the whole body. That's why we have a potluck. Everybody's invited. The marriage getaway was a great example of that this past weekend. We had couples there. We had young and old. We had couples who had been married less than five months. We had couples that had been married for 40 plus years. We, we had people from all walks of life. And all these couples were coming together, sharing 
and, and, and just encouraging each other. And there was such a synergy and a, a dynamic there because we all came together. It wasn't like, well, the young couples, you go over there and the older couples, you go over there. We can all learn and grow from each other. And that's what we want to keep at the Oasis. We don't want the singles to be over there doing their own thing and the marriage be over there doing their own thing and the men over there always doing their own thing and the women always doing their own thing. We want to come together. Market on the move, an example of that this coming Saturday. We're going to come together as a church and minister to our community. All of us, not just a part of us. Paul's saying that's important. So let's finish this. This is a really cool part. Paul says, I received then from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. That stuck out. Again, Jesus wasn't thinking about himself the night before he went to the cross, the night that he was betrayed. He had every right humanly, and you and I would probably be there. I'm getting betrayed. I'm going to die on a cross tomorrow. Come on, guys, minister to me. Jesus did just the opposite. He took the towel. He took a basin. He washed his disciples' feet. He was always thinking about them. He wasn't thinking about himself. What an example. And after he had given thanks, which by the way, that given thanks is the Greek word Eucharisteo, which why, why we, some people call the Lord's table the Eucharist. It literally means in the Greek language to give thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. By the way, little words sometimes in the Bible have such depth of meaning. Don't pass over the word for. The word means not only on behalf of, but in our place. Wow. I'm doing this for you. It is on your behalf and it is also in your place. I'm taking tomorrow the punishment and wrath of God for all sin of all humanity for all time. I'm going to the cross in your place so that you never have to. Those of us in Jesus Christ, Paul says, Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation. We don't ever have to worry about being judged for our sins because Jesus Christ took our judgment for us. Praise God. He died for us. He says, do this in remembrance of me, realizing what the event really involved. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Word proclaim. Interesting word. It means literally to dramatize the Lord's death. Every time you and I participate in the Lord's table, we are literally putting what the Lord did on display once again. It's almost like a movie, if you will, of what the Lord did every time the body of Christ comes together and celebrates the Lord's table. And not only is it to be a memorial celebration, but notice at the end of verse 26, we are to look at this as an anticipatory celebration when we look ahead because he's alive, he's not dead, he's coming back. And so the Lord's table really should not be this somber thing. It should be a celebration of what the Lord has done for us and his coming back again. For this reason, Paul says, though, whoever eats this bread and drinks the cup of the Lord 
in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. An unworthy manner is simply a manner that is not consistent with who Christ is. And folks, a lot of Christians get caught up in this. Many Christians down through the years have have not partaken of the Lord's table because they felt unworthy. Folks, the Bible says all of us are unworthy. In fact, it's good that we feel unworthy because in a sense that means we're partaking in a worthy manner. If we felt worthy to partake of the Lord's table, then it would be an unworthy manner. None of us are worthy. We are only made worthy by the blood of Jesus Christ and His righteousness. But Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about an unworthy manner, attitude. In other words, flippant, could care less. Laugh about it, making jokes, not paying, you know, not, not thinking about the Lord at all as we partake of it, you know, thinking about what's, that would be an unworthy manner. And then Paul goes on to say another part of the unworthy manner is when we don't consider each other, which is what he's going to talk about in just a moment. Because he says, a person should examine himself first, and in this way let him eat the bread and drink of that cup. For the one who eats and drinks without notice, very important, careful regard for the body, eats and drinks judgment against himself. Folks, the body there is not the body of the Lord. It's Christ's body, the church. This is what he's talked about throughout this whole context. How members of the community are viewing one another. This is a decisive issue there. He's saying, do you realize in Corinth, you're celebrating, if you will, the Lord's table in such an unworthy manner because you are not considering your brothers and sisters in Christ at all. You have no regard for the body. Wow, that's a challenge to me. I don't know about to you. That when we come together as God's people, God expects us to carefully regard His body, the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why he says in verse 30, divine judgment has come to Corinth. The reasons were the ongoing sin of selfish living and again, the thoughtless participation at the Lord's table. He says, this is why many of you after so long a time are weak and sick and quite a few are dead. If we would have examined ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, notice we're under his discipline, verse 32, so that we may not be condemned with the world. The church at Corinth is going through some heavy discipline. So notice what he says in verse 33. Here's the key and we'll wrap it up. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat in this context, eat the Lord's table, partake of communion, the the bread and the cup. Wait for one another. The word wait means to look out for and also to take by the hand. Hey, we're in this together. I'm not going ahead of you. I'm not just thinking of myself. I'm going to grab your hand because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm going to look out for you. And if you're looking out for me or others, then we're all going to be looked out for. And we're going to treat each other the way Christ would treat us. That's what God wants to see in His people. That's why, again, then in verse 34 and ending this passage, Paul says, if anyone is hungry, if it's all about just satisfying your hunger, 
and you're so hungry that you can't think about somebody else, he says, then why don't you just eat at home? So that when you do come together and assemble, it does not lead to judgment. I'll give other directions when I come. The selfish attitude that marked the Corinthian church comes through real loud and strong in this passage. It manifested itself in a particularly ugly display at the Lord's table. And Paul said, you guys in Corinth have gotten your eyes way off Jesus. Because if you guys would have kept your focus on Jesus, it's all about laying down our lives for each other and serving one another and looking out for each other. And it's not all about us. And somewhere along the line, as a church, they got their eyes off of Jesus and it was all about them. And look at the trouble it was causing. The discipline of God had come The judgment of God had come to the church at Corinth. And so Paul said, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And when we do that, we will truly look at each other in a different way. We will look at each other and we will treat each other as Jesus would. As Jesus would. I just want to say, I I thank God for the group that God has assembled here. Because so far, not that there's never always room for improvement. But guys, we are assembling a group of people who are truly trying to let God's supernatural love allow them to be selfless and love each other in a sacrificial way. And I'm telling you, that's that's one of the reasons why God is blessing our church. God is blessing our church because we're truly striving to be a reflection of Jesus Christ, of how we treat each other. And guess what? That's getting out. People are starting to hear about that. Because that's not the way all churches are. I don't know about some of the churches you've been a part of, but... Not all people in local churches are really coming to look out for each other. It's all about themselves. And if you and I can get up every day and take up our cross and die to self and be like Jesus, we will find a life unlike any other life we could ever have. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that in a way that we can't even totally wrap our minds around or even articulate that as God, as the creator of everything, as the sustainer of the universe, you you humbled yourself. You left the glories and adoration of heaven and you came as a human being. And you allowed yourself to suffer. You allowed yourself to experience pain, spiritual, emotional, and physical. And you did it all out of your unbelievable 
love for us. You left everything, laid it all aside for us. And yet, so often, God, we confess as your followers that we claim to be, we're so full of self. God, help us to just be more like Jesus. Who does not think of himself, but thinks of us first. Help us to continue to treat each other at the oasis and all of our brothers and sisters in Christ and anyone that we come in contact with, with the love and grace of Jesus. Because we know, Lord, as we're going to see in just a couple weeks in 1 Corinthians 13, that out of all the things that could be in our lives, Paul says the greatest, the greatest of all is love. Help us, Lord, to love you and to truly love each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here tonight. Hope to see you Sunday.